0: Strategies evolve. To me, I hate this idea of something that's just a fix. That's a strategy. No, it evolves and tomorrow we'll twist it and tweak it and develop it and so do that. But if somebody came in and just went, I oh, want my own 20-year strategy, all you do is waste some time.
1: Hi there, this is Ben Morton and you're listening to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's totally free. This week, I am delighted to bring you this conversation with Jane Nickerson, who has been the CEO of Swim England since April 2017. One of the most interesting parts of this episode is focused on one of the age-old leadership debates. Do you need to be an expert in what your team or organisation does in order to be an effective leader? Jane successfully guided Swim England through the COVID-19 pandemic and describes herself as feeling fortunate to work in a sector that is based on fun. And as a result, she encourages everyone in the organisation to embrace this in their day-to-day work. Outside of swimming, Jane is grounded by her voluntary work with the Samaritans and really enjoys being active in a different volunteer-based organisation. She was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours for services to swimming during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is Jane's belief that with positive thinking directed in the right direction, everything is possible, which is another key theme of this week's episode. So now, without any further delay, let's get into this episode and my conversation with Jane Nickerson. Jane, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today. First of all, how are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. I'd like the weather to be a bit sunnier, but apart from that, I'm absolutely fine, thanks.
1: Yeah, I keep thinking spring has arrived, but it keeps not quite arriving, right? At least here in the UK. It's stopped thundering and rain on the Conservatory Reef, which is
0: always fending and recording, so at least it's stopped doing that now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's hope it stays that way. let uh... So, Jane, you spent the first 20 years of your career, I believe, working in the hospitality sector, mostly in sort of the hotel sector before then moving across to, I guess, professional bodies and the, the third sector, where you largely lead an organisation of, of volunteers, right? I'm really curious, what are some of the main changes you had to make, if, if at all, assuming there probably are some, between moving between those two environments?
0: I, I think one of the biggest changes is understanding about finance. Because in the hotel industry, it was about making money, completely about making money, giving great service. But in return for that, it was about money in the bank off to the shareholders. Also learned a lot about doing things immediately in the hotel industry, because if you don't sell the room tonight or that meal tonight, you can't sell it tomorrow. And of course, everybody's paid to do the job they're doing and to give great service. And then you come into... A community which is largely volunteers with a smaller, much smaller workforce team, and for me it's about making sure that everybody feels one team. So that was a difference. It's trying to have a seamless understanding. It didn't matter whether you got paid to do the job or whether you were a great volunteer, that it is completely seamless. But I think it's all about respect anyway. It's all about people. So the hospitality industry is all about people and working with volunteers is all about people. So providing you've got that respect and that relationship, it wasn't that different. I suppose financially it was different because suddenly you make money to spend money now. So we don't make money for the sake of it. So every penny we can get our hands on, we want to spend. So you suddenly move to from a making money and big profits and going up organisation to it's fine to have a balanced budget at the end of the year because the money needs to go out the door because your return on investment is something completely different. It's not just money in the bank, it's medals or it's people in the water or it's fitness and health and that sort of thing. So they were the main differences I think I found from moving from one type of
1: industry to the next. So do you think your, let's say, financial acumen or your ability as a chief executive really understand the the numbers is that is that even more important sort of when you're running a professional body or working in the in the charitable sector or, or is it essentially the the same is your view that kind of if you're a chief executive really need to un- understand the numbers regardless
0: yeah you've got to know the numbers and so you've got to know your numbers quickly i think i always like what i call the quick and dirty accounts where i might at the end of the month uh, especially in a spending organisation, because in a way, it's harder to turn that tap off. So if you're in a, a consumer making money to give the shareholders and the money sort of comes in quite as quickly, it just means that shareholders are probably not going to have the money in the pocket at the end of the year as long as you've got enough to cover costs. In a spending organisation, if you can't balance what's coming in against what's going out, it's a much quicker deficit. So you've really got to know your numbers and be on top of them.
1: And were there any particular... Things that you did or approaches from a leadership perspective that you found really didn't didn't work when you moved from the commercial sector to, to the third sector? Was there anything you thought, oh, that's just not having the same impact that it used to? I
0: guess it's difficult because I was always involved anyway. And I've also been involved in the third sector as a volunteer. So I think it's just switching a mindset from leading as a volunteer and leading as a paid employee. And part of it is with some of the volunteers, you have to work really hard because you get paid and you get paid a lot of money to do something I'm doing for free. And that's not fair. And you have to work really hard to um, combat that, if you like. And just it's not about the pay. It's actually about doing the best job we can. Timing is really interesting. The timing that you communicate with volunteers is really different. Probably wasn't such a culture shock to me because hotels are 24-7. But imagine if you come from more of a nine-to-five environment and suddenly you've got this whole world of volunteers who do their day job nine-to-five and they want to talk to you at nine o'clock at night because that's when they're doing the volunteering. That's when you can get some tensions. So we've had to work really hard with our volunteers and our team to say respect each other's space, respect when each other works. But also to shift some of the time patterns of my team that work with me, and say to them, split your day into three. And if you're working evenings, because that's when you're communicating and you're with your volunteers and things, take the morning and the afternoon off. I don't care which. Don't need to know which. But don't work all three. Split your day into three, and you you work it out what you're doing. And that's worked really well for us. The team working a third, or third, or third days.
1: I'm really curious about that. And it, it's great that you say it's working really well. Like how long did it do you think it took for that to start work working really well? Because I think people very much have a mindset, don't they, that nine to five, Monday to Friday or nine to six, whatever, is the is the working day. And I was talking about this recently on, on the show with Simon Ursell, who was part of the UK trial into the four, four day working week mm-hmm. and just how hard it is to shift our mindset. And if it's two o'clock on a Wednesday, let's say, and we are not at our work desk working, we can really start to feel like guilty and that we, we should be. So I'm curious, like what that what that actual journey was like to, to get people to the point where they felt felt comfortable doing that.
0: It's depending on the department. And the departments and the teams that work very closely with volunteers really took to it because it helped them. But then we had to work that through with the more office-based staff in the service departments and who were well, they're not here. I need to speak to them. They're not here. And, things. and there was a little bit of resentment there. Okay, it works for all of you. I don't care whether you're in finance. I don't care if you're in PD or whatever. You work the hours that suits. Get the outcomes out there. Make sure the job gets done. But if you go off now and have your nails done for an hour and a half, I don't care as long as the job gets done. And I've got a great team now. And they will, they've got lots of them have got children, lots of them got families. And they'll do the school runs and they'll pick the kids up. But the number of people that are back on the email in the evening when they've fed the kids and the kids gone to bed and they'll just clear things up in the evening because it suits them. And I don't like that. I have this personal thing on emails where it goes, my working hours are so and so, and I don't expect you to respond. I don't like that in writing because, for me, we should just respect each other's time. And emails aren't instant messaging. Don't expect that instant response.
1: Yeah. It takes a while. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. And have you put in place some sort of core hours to make the facilitation of meetings kind of work? Or, again, is it just a very grown-up approach and you just make it work without having to sort of set those guidelines.
0: Yeah, it's a grown-up approach because each team's different and each team almost finds their own way. And also post-COVID, a number of fairly senior people decided to reduce their hours. They've been on furlough. They did not want to come back on five days a week. So I've got quite a number of senior people on four days a week. So they've had to work out between them how they cover that how they then cover meetings, how they all come together for meetings and don't fall into each other's days off, or how they cover each other on holidays. And we leave it to them to do it because at the end of the day, they want to get the job done. So if they have the choice of when they do it, it actually makes for a much more productive workforce. In fact, honestly, then I get a lot more out of them doing this and if I chain them to their desks for eight hours a day.
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love that. And it just... <laughs> There's so much evidence, like hard research evidence, so many individuals, CEOs like yourself talking about getting so much more product productivity out of people when they start to move away from the, from the nine to five. It's, yeah, there's overwhelming amount of evidence, which again, to Simon Ersel's point, it came on the show before he said, like, I'm not telling everybody that they should adopt a four day week. He said, I think the question is, is the way that we're currently working the most productive way, the best way for the organization and, and for the individuals? I think mean, in some cases it, it will be. I think in many cases, probably it, it, it won't be. And there's different ways of, of doing things.
0: It has to be what suits each each person, each organisation. I'm not sure our volunteers would be very happy if all our staff went four days a week, though. <laughs> I think that would be a bit of a a bit of a little bit of resentment there. I think we probably have to jiggle that one round a bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. and Jane, what advice would you give to somebody's about who is about to step into their first managing director or chief exec role? in a professional body or the or the charitable sector if you could give just one piece of advice
0: oh one okay can I have two
1: yeah of course you can
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think one is always always be honest always be trustworthy always be true to yourself on that basis and I think one thing that's really important to me give the team the credit because they do it they do the work I only say as a leader I'm only visible if things have gone slightly wrong and you have to go and deal with it or if we're out in the front doing some major lobbying work and things like that but apart from that everybody's doing the work give them the credit for it make sure they take the credit and get the credit because without without your team you're not a leader you're dead in the water
1: yeah i i, I love that it reminds me of it's one of my favorite quotes actually it comes from bear bryant who was a um american football coach o- over in the states and i mean the quote goes um if something went well, they did it. If it went semi well, we did it. If it went really badly, I I did it. I did it. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, it's very it, true. It, it's, it's great. So isn't it? It? And if you can live yeah. by that, yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think that links nicely with your first point there around, around honesty, right? If you take credit for something where the team's, team's done it, they'll very quickly see you as dishonest or disingenuous. It's a pretty surefire way to um, start to disengage your team, isn't it?
0: I think so, and I, I think how do they do it. That you know, I've, I've got a fantastic team. I've always been a believer in making sure that everybody that's in my direct report team can do their job better than I can. So my job's just to make sure we know the direction and we're going in it. We're all going in it together because if they are very focused and very expert in their role, the difficulty is they don't always appreciate everybody else's. So that's my job is to just herd them. It's a herding job mainly, <laughs> herd them together and keep them going herding and nurturing i think
1: yeah well it's the the, the shepherd analogy right kind of if um, kind of the, the bible talks about kind of the, the the shepherd and there's lots of analogies in there over the over the centuries about leadership and the the good shepherd there's a lot of lot of truth in that i think
0: yeah there is there is yeah
1: and that's quite a seamless transition actually to to the next thing i wanted to ask you jane which is um it's a big question, I think, and it's arguably up there alongside the the age old question in in leadership of are leaders born or made, but but that that's not it for now. <laughs> so the question is, and you, you know the one I'm about to ask you, how important do you think it is for the leader to have the sort of functional experience, the sector experience of the organization they're they're leading? Or I guess to phrase the question in, in the opposite way, if one is a very competent leader, could you successfully lead an organization that is, I don't know, producing and making baked beans as you could lead a professional body or a group of, of law law firms or something? How, how important is that functional expertise, do you think?
0: Um, I think it can help and it can be hindrance. To be honest, if you're too steeped into it, and sometimes it can get in the way and you're not letting the others, the experts, do their job. But I think, above everything else, you need a passion for what you're doing. You need to feel really, really passionate about it, whatever that is. Now, it's really interesting because we've had these discussions as our team and all the rest of it. And somebody said to me that it was my passion that came across all the time. And because I was a swimmer, so I'm passionate. My chief financial officer said, should be that passionate if we were doing tiddlywinks because that's her. So it it was a difficult blend. And then I spoke to somebody the other day, because I'm retiring at the end of the year, and we'll go out looking for my successor. And I've been talking to other people about, are you interested in my role and things? And somebody who I thought would be really good for the role said, no, I'm not. (laughs) Excuse me. And I said, why? Why? What's not at my job? (laughs) Anyway, I'm not that passionate about swimming. I'm more passionate about outdoor sport, and that's where I want to spend my life. So I don't think it's about the knowledge, but I do think it's about the passion. And if if you're making baked beans, you've got to care that you're making the best baked beans in the world. If you don't give a blow whether those baked beans are good or bad, you won't be a great
1: leader. So if we keep going with the the baked bean analogy, because it's probably quite a quite 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 a simple one, Um, (laughs) let's say for argument's sake, you personally were recruiting for a new CEO of um, XY Baked Bean Company, and you got two two candidates. One has got a proven track record of, of leadership and one has worked for the other world's leading baked bean company. Like, Which one would you go for?
0: The one that I thought was best with people. So side by side, which one had most affinity with people? Because the baked beans is important. You've got to care about them, but you only care about them if you bring the people along with you and that. So if you're a ruthless best baked bean in the world, but I don't care how it's made and everybody's going to work, 80 hours a, a week and I don't care about them that's not the right person so it's passionate about beans, but passionate about people
1: yeah I I, I love that because that almost for me is a is a definition of of leadership I think and I agree you've got to have the the passion for for what you're doing but I think a, a passion and caring about people is a fundamental part part of leadership right like I often talk about the job of a leader is to deliver the results you're accountable for and at the same time to support look after and develop the people that you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead so if you've got if you've got both of those you're you're off to the races as they say I think aren't you
0: exactly you've got the best baked beans then
1: yes yeah yeah and happy people make making the best baked beans
0: yep absolutely yeah (laughs)
1: love it and Jane I know you're also really sort of um, passionate and sort of keen on sort of talking about re- resilience and kind of the importance of resilience as a as a leader. It's a word that probably in the last five years has been used a hell of a lot right it kind of I think sometimes people have different definitions and interpretations of the word. so to, to start off, what does resilience mean mean to you?
0: Can I start by saying what it doesn't mean to me? Because I think it often gets confused. So to me, resilience isn't being able to work day and night, slogging away, doing everything. That's not resilience. That's stupidity. <laughs> resilience is about bouncing back from adversity, in my view. So facing some challenges, not being completely Thrown down by them and despairing of them, but seeing them as an opportunity. Okay, it didn't go right. So how do we then get it right? How do we get through this? How do we use that learning to get better at what we do, and then not let it affect you mentally? Not to be like, oh my goodness, Sarah Bernhardt, life is so awful, and what has me that? It isn't. It's just about building, 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 and being very optim. For me, it's about optimism as well and being elastic. That's back to how it was. Things will go wrong things and bad things will happen but how do you
1: bounce back yeah and what are some of the then some of the strategies that you have personally used to bounce back and and stay stay resilient because i'd imagine running um the organization that you do kind of covid must have been particularly challenging right when swimming pools were shut for many months probably a couple of years on on and off like i was on the, the receiving end of that being the parent of a very keen swimmer like covid was the longest in my daughter's 11 years that she's ever ever not swum but that must have tested your resilience and and that of the organization right
0: Uh, i think so i think for me it's about finding solutions so i can't bear sitting there going oh my goodness the pools are closed the members can't do anything whatever it's about working to find solutions so my job out there was just to keep hammering governments of yeah why is the pool closed it's full of chlorine you know you're opening the pubs and you're telling me my changing rooms are a problem well look at the pub loose, for goodness sake. <laughs> <you know>. so <laughs> yeah, it was a famous thing that I wasn't allowed to say twice I did it once but that worked that, that sort of pushing and finding solutions and, and my swimmers are finding solutions off the back of that they were in paddling pools they were on stretch cords we were doing dry land diving dry land artistic swimming everything we could think of to do it so that sort of positivity of finding a solution keeps me going I think I'm a mother's daughter right (laughs) I know I'm a mother's daughter but I do think some of this is nurture so it's nature so two stories I was told about my mother was one we were I was in Athens with the swimming team when there was the aftershocks of an earthquake okay and she was at my sister's and my sister's phone wasn't working so I could hear her she couldn't hear me my sister is very clearly saying to my mother, if you go upstairs on the upstairs phone, you will hear her. No, she's having an earthquake. She'll phone back when it's over. OK, I wasn't going to die in an earthquake. I'm just going to have an earthquake and phone her back. it would be <laughs> fine. And then I was with her when we were in Hurricane Andrew in the Bahamas. And they made us go into an underground banking room all night where the storm was raging and my mother wasn't not happy about this, she tried to fight her way out of it, but they were very insistent. They right. won. We came out the next morning and she said, oh, what's the problem? So I said, oh, well, that palm tree's is a bit upside down and we haven't got a roof on our bathroom. And she went, but we'd have been in the bed and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think some of it is is nature and nurture and all the rest of it. But um, it is to me it's just about having a positive attitude. And then when things do get a bit rough, I go swimming or have a bath. As, soon as I get back in water, I'm okay.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. I I guess the, what you shared there though links back to what we were just talking about in terms of leadership and which leader would you would you pick? Right. I think. It sounds like for you, a big part of your resilience comes from the fact that you're so passionate about what it is that, that you do. So you'll always want to find the, the solution because you either want to be in water yourself or you want to keep all of your your members sw- swimming. So that gives you the the energy to, to find those solutions, where I guess if you are a bit meh about what the organization does, then you might be more inclined to accept the challenges and not find the solutions to the problems.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. I think so. But I also think it is personality to a degree as well, because I think I display that in my volunteer role as well and things like that. So, you know, I'm a, and that's quite different because I'm a volunteer Samaritan. Okay. And on that one, you can't give advice. You can't find the solution for the person. You have to allow them to talk through and find their own solutions. So that in itself is... It, it's different for me, that is. So I have to sit on the phone thinking, well, if you just said this, it'd be fine. But you can't, because if they could just do that, they'd have just done it. But for me, the challenge there is getting somebody else to say, if I can do that, it will be okay. Mm. And sometimes it isn't okay, and it's accepting that. So I just think I, I just like, yeah, helping people finding solutions on the way through. Yeah. This is what keeps me going, I guess.
1: Yeah. Mm. I'm curious about your samaritan work jane do you how much do you find sort of you carry forward into your day some of the the conversations and the the thoughts that you've you've had and are there any particular strategies you have to use to sort of almost compartmentalize and 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 move on which i guess links links with resilience like what does that look like for you because i think it's really admirable anybody who works with the samaritans but i always wonder like what. What burden people carry who who do that
0: um I think we're we're well supported Samaritans, so we debrief to each other you've always got support if you get there, but yeah, I probably am very good at putting things into that box. that's that moment in time that's that person, but I come at here and I suppose because I have got a great life, I'm very grounded. I am very fortunate, I'm very lucky, and because of that, I can cope with other people's lives not being so great and not letting them bring me down. And some people say to you, to me, you must be really hard. You must be really hard. That upsets me, actually, because I think there's a massive difference between being hard and not caring, and being caring but not let it get to you. I think there's a huge difference. It's hard to describe it to people, but I think it's that difference that keeps me going on everything. Yeah, but the whole thing about the Paul's finger shit was horrendous. COVID was horrendous. But I couldn't make COVID go away but I could manage to get people back into a swimming pool. So it's carving out the controllables, I guess, as well is really important.
1: Yeah, that reminds me as well of one of the, I think, most useful sort of models that gets shared in, in personal development, which everyone seems to think Stephen Covey came up with when he wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But it goes way back beyond that, which is, and you've touched on it there, the... The circles of, of control and, and influence right and and concern actually we can't do anything about Covid we can't make that go away but actually there are things that we can try and influence maybe some in your case lobbying with government hey open the pools if the pubs are open and there is stuff that you absolutely can control right and I think that's probably where the most effective and resilient people hang out isn't it by focusing on well okay what what can I do what is possible rather than folks on all the stuff that, that you can't do.
0: Yeah, and I think that helps me with the evils of social media, because social media can be a curse and a blessing, and people can be so, so mean on social media. And one of the things I want to do after I've retired is do some work in this space to try and help people to understand how the impact that being horrible anonymously on social media can have on people. But one of the big mantras I always work by, I can't control what people say or do, but I can only control how I react to it. And as long as I can keep reminding myself of that, not always easy, but as long as I keep reminding myself of that, that's what makes a difference. But I I do think there is a role to be done there to help help with social media help people to understand that they should not be so horrible on social media
1: yeah yeah it's very damaging very pervasive isn't it, it can mm. yeah it can really have a huge huge impact as we've seen from some high profile examples of it but of course the hundreds of thousands if not millions of examples of it that, that don't get reported in the media to to everyday people yeah yeah a little kindness goes a long way in the world doesn't
0: it oh i massive I mean, there's a lovely, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but kindness by post. No. And you just sign up for this, this it's on the web, you sign up for free, and then several times a year, it's sort of Christmas, uh, Valentine's Day, things like that, certain times a year they do, they match you with somebody to send a card. Total stranger, you don't know who they are. And you tend you receive a card and you send a card. And I've had some cracking ones where people have sent recipes and done hand-drawn flowers and things, or just a shop bought cards saying thinking of you i think it started around covid and just for lonely people but even if you're not lonely it's just lovely getting something through the post but actually being able to send something putting some thought into what you're sending it's really nice Little kindness goes a long way
1: i'm going to check that out personally and what we'll also do is just pop a link to that in the in the show notes for everybody because i've not heard heard about that before but it sounds sounds fantastic yeah it's so powerful as well this is one of the favorite things i love asking people when they come on a leadership program with me and it's normally when we're talking about sort of feedback and recognition and I, and I know the statistics now so if i've got a group of 18 people on a program say i can guarantee between four and five will answer positively to this and i would like to ask, said right who on the call has still got a handwritten letter or thank you card from a former boss, manager, or, or leader that they worked for. And it's normally four or five people who will say yes. And I say, right, have you still got it? And everybody will say, say yes. It's in a special box in a desk drawer. And as they start talking about it, you see them light up, like their state changes and they've got a big smile on their face. And you can know in that instant they would have done almost anything that that particular leader, manager, boss would have would have asked from them. And then you ask, like, how, how long ago did you receive that card? I mean, the longest I've had or the oldest car that someone's got is 20 years and they've still, still got it, but it's just the... To the point around social media as well, in a largely digital world, it's just so novel and unique and nice, isn't it? When something lands on the on the doorstep, because it's the, the thought and the attention that you know has, has gone into it, rather than just typing a quick email on a Friday to say, hey, thanks for a great week, Jane. You, you're a star. It's It's just different, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's very different. I've still got one from a college lecturer. Wow. My English college lecturer, yeah.
1: <laughs> and out of politeness, I won't ask how old that is.
0: It's old, but it was only a few words as well. It was just a quote from the Tempest, be free and fare thee well. And uh, it just summed everything up, I think, to me from her. Yeah, it would be 40 years.
1: Wow. There you go. That's my, that's my new new oldest <laughs> note I can, sure I can talk yeah. about.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Done. Um, Jane, a couple of my regular quick-fire questions to finish, if we can. What would you say is the one book that has had the greatest impact upon you? Or to ask it another way, as I always do, one book that you find yourself gifting or recommending the most?
0: The book that means the most to me in my entire life is Merry Mouse, because it was my first book. (laughs) And I managed to track down, it's a little strip book, and I managed to um, track down a copy of it in an antique bookshop in Hay and Y and bought it. So that, that's where my love of reading came from. Now, I read probably a book a week. So what's the one that resonates, babe? But one that means a lot to me is, oh, my gosh, Islands of Abandonment. And it just, it's not a novel. It's a book about all the abandoned places where they've been abandoned through, through man, through war or through a uh, nuclear disaster or something, and then how nature is reclaiming them. And nature is... Coming through, reclaiming these really abandoned areas, war zones, a place where hotels are still in place, but completely empty because it's just a strip of land, There's a no man's land between two warring nations. But nature's coming through, animals are coming through, and that. And the strap line of it, I think, is really lovely because it, it's the most precious hymn to resilience, is what somebody's called it, most precious hymn to resilience. And it's just about how nature will come back um, through adversity
1: yeah love that and the final quick fire question always have to caveat this with other than your mobile phone what would you say is one item that if it were to be lost stolen or broken you'd immediately find yourself going out to replace
0: notebook and pen i write i, I still use the phantom pen i still write a lot i write every day and i always have a notebook in my pocket thoughts memories Quotes, something that happens when I'm walking and thoughts come into my head. Keep a little diary every day. So, yeah, it'd have to be my notebook and pen.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. That is probably the most common answer that the MDs really? and CEOs <laughs> who come on the show share. Yeah, there's a... I'm noticing, I, I quite often say this on the show, there's a real... um a trait I guess you would call it for um senior leaders loving like traditional good quality stationery in a notepad notepad oh, and pen love it love it yeah. <laughs> brilliant and that what a wonderful place to to wrap up this conversation in this episode Jane thank you so much for for your time today i really enjoyed joy chatting to you as I said before we recorded as a um, parent of a uh, daughter who's recently getting into competitive swimming. It's been really, really interesting to, to talk to you and, and to connect with you. And thank you for all the year's service you've done to swimming in the UK. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: There you have it, another episode done, and I hope you got value from it as always. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode and whether or not it resonates with you. So do connect with me on LinkedIn to let me know what you think. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership, or you can click on the feedback link in the show notes. And whilst you're in the show notes, do remember to sign up for my free 10 for 10 leadership program to help you master some of those basics of good, effective leadership. And before you go, can I ask you just one thing that will take just a couple of minutes of your time? Wherever you happen to be listening, please, could you rate and review the show? It really does help. It enables us to keep the show going. It enables us to attract more and more guests. And it gives me the energy and motivation to keep producing the show for you with my team. Other than that, that's it for this week, folks. Look after yourself. Look after those who've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And as always, lead on.